This episode of The Body Serve is brought to you by Health IQ, an insurance agency that helps health conscious people like runners, vegans, weightlifters, and you guessed it, tennis players, get lower rates on life insurance. Go to healthiq.com slash bodyserve or mention the promo code bodyserve when speaking with an agent to support the show and see if you qualify. But I don't, I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hi everyone, welcome to the Body Serve to our mid-Australian Open episode. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. And we're going to be calling this the Unhappy Slam. It's not super original, but it fits. Okay. I have felt like a dark cloud just hovering over me during this past week. And I know you might say that is on me. Well, I did say that in one mm-hmm. of the three previous intros that we did before the start of this <laughs> that episode. That I insist that we discard. Because you said they were boring. And I mm-hmm. ass- assure you, this is the most boring of the lot. Really? <laughs> okay. Let's start at the beginning. This slam did not come to a very auspicious beginning, right? Okay. There was Sharapova at the draw ceremony. There were just some icky things going on. The app and the website went down in the first few minutes of the tournament. A lot of, like, small failures building on each other. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're calling it the unhappy slam, but we have hope that this weekend, this is now Saturday, onward into week two will be better. Mm-hmm. And that the dark cloud has lifted. And part of that has to do with the great work done by Angelique Kerber last <laughs> night. <laughs> wow. Well, don't you think? Yes. I mean, if we pinpoint... No, I, I'm saying wow because she was incredible. Oh, okay. If and... we if we think that Sharapova being a part of the draw ceremony was what started this, this all, this dark cloud, this ominous <laughs> situation for the Australian Open that then saw so many things go wrong... Maybe her exit in such a swift, clean, efficient... (laughs) (laughs) Undramatic. Yeah. Comprehensive way is is how this tournament's going to get back on Mm -hmm. track. Has it defeated the evil that was hovering like a specter around this Australian Open? You just always have to go one step further, (laughs) right? I'm not saying that Sharapova was the evil, but there was something all week. I don't know if anyone else feels this way. There was just something really negative, like gnawing at me when I was watching this tennis. And it wasn't her. It wasn't her? No. You mean it's not the potential of her winning the tournament? Because I feel like every tournament that she's played... Starting with Stuttgart, your attitude was like, well, she's just going to win. I just know it. I'm going to prepare myself. Like, there's no point in thinking <laughs> anything else. Uh. I'm just going to accept it. <laughs> so maybe that's something you need to grapple with within you. It, it certainly that's, is. That's part yeah. of your dark cloud. Luckily, I have a lot of other like-minded people on Twitter to stir the pot. Serena Williams, one, in, one of them. <laughs> Wow. You know, people are just sitting here minding their own business. Maria's getting ready to go out and play Angie. Uh And this Rena's Army account, a fan account, Mm -hmm. whom Serena Williams follows, it turns out, tweeted something like, honestly, I just hope that Maria wins, basically because they don't want Kerber to win. And Serena responds with this emoji, and it's impossible to describe. 
it's an emoji without a mouth. Right. It's just eyes. It's it, it it's was like, like a very judgy emoji. Like, how could you want Maria to win? Serena is at home, you know, parenting her child. She's probably out here making money moves, working with Vogue. She's probably recording commercials for Burley bras. And she has time. She had the time to check her own fan account. And man, like, I would die. I would absolutely shrivel up from shame. Two things. Let this be a lesson to <laughs> the Serena army. Not just Serena's army, Twitter account. Mm-hmm. That Angie is one of Serena's own. Yeah, they're like, friends. They're friends. And the way y'all acted toward Angie in 2016 and then dragging her through all the mud in 2017. Mm. You best believe Miss Serena saw some of that. She, I guess she right? did. Mm-hmm. And don't forget, she's reminding us who enemy number one is in Serena Williams' mind. Yeah, like, keep your eye on the prize. <laughs> <laughs> and the prize is wishing Sharapova ill, even when Serena's not in the No, tournament. my point is, if you are doing mother's work, mm-hmm. right? Right. Do not stray and get sidetracked. <laughs> Is that in the Bible? (laughs) (laughs) Because mother has her children and Angie is one of them. Even if Angie had to do what she had to do when she did it. Mm -hmm. You know, like Serena respects that hustle. She But don't get it twisted. Don't be all tangential out here flailing away taking shots at people that don't need to be shot at. (laughs) (laughs) Like, can I just say, Serena's pettiness is something that gives me so much joy. Because I feel that I'm not alone. And there will always be someone more petty than I. And that's Which the takes, goat. It takes some doing. <laughs> it sure does. I said there were two things I wanted to say with respect to that. And I don't know what the second mm-hmm. one was now at this point. Ooh, I remember. This account. I don't follow this account. I don't know him or her. <laughs> mm-hmm. But can you imagine? Serena, mother, follows you to begin with. You know, that mm-hmm. is a huge scorn of itself. Yeah. And then... Mother responds to you, and you still somehow manage to have that bad of a day. (laughs) Because you are just flailing around, doubling down, even after Mother checked you. You know, like, Serena says, come correct, essentially. And Mm -hmm. you're like, you know, I I said what I said. (laughs) But then, like, the rest of the army chimes in and was like, girl, Mm -mm. you don't represent us. (laughs) Okay. So let's talk about one of the major fuck-ups of week one, which we rehash every year, I feel. I, I think we've talked about the heat rule in detail before mm-hmm. on the show, and uh, I th- it does bear repeating. I don't remember which day it was, but especially during the Djokovic-Monfils match, heat was a serious factor in the matches. I mean, it's not news that Melbourne in January, in the middle of summer, gets super hot. Now, do you want to hear about the heat rule? Make it brief and succinct. It's really interesting. I mean... Oh, my God. (laughs) So, okay. They increased the temperature thresholds that would allow the heat rule to go into effect. So it went up to 40 degrees Celsius, like, ambient air temperature, and then 32.5 degrees Celsius, the wet bulb globe temperature. And you may be asking, what the hell is wet bulb globe temperature? I'm glad you asked because I'm here to explain it. And this is the nature of our relationship. Mm-hmm. 
he says, oh, did you know? Did you know? And then If before I could say, know, no, I didn't know, nor did I want to know, <laughs> I get like a 10-minute <laughs> situation. If you don't know, now you know. Mm -hmm. So wet bulb globe temperature. First, let me preface this with meteorology and geology and all that shit was one of my literal worst subjects in school. That and probability. I... Probability is like the only test that I ever failed really yeah. badly. Probability sucks. Like permutations and combinations and how, what cards will come up and what the mm -hmm. fuck. Yeah. Yes. Back so, on track. Wet bulb globe temperature. It's an apparent temperature measure that estimates temperature, humidity, infrared light, visible light, wind speed, and comes to uh, like a more holistic picture of what temperature actually feels like. So the idea does it factor in money lost by the tournament if the players aren't on court is that part of <laughs> no the calculation <laughs> it's how you use the wet bulb globe temperature and so you may ask what is wet bulb temperature they didn't explain what a wet bulb is i still don't really grasp it okay but getting real scientific here that is the temperature a parcel of air would have if if it were cooled to saturation by the evaporation of water into the air. Basically, it means if there were 100% humidity in this air, how how much would it cool, okay? I don't really know what that means. Basically, it's the lowest temperature that could be reached like in the ambient conditions if there were 100% humidity. What that means for us is that sometimes the ambient temperature can be very high But if the humidity is not also correspondingly high, the heat rule doesn't go into effect because the secondary measure, the wet bulb globe measure, doesn't go very high. So while we may see 40 degrees and we're like, oh my God, that person should be dead. As far as they're concerned, if there isn't sufficient humidity to go along with that, then they're like, mm. Right. Like, okay, let's say the ambient temperature is 39.5 degrees. The encore temperature may be 50, maybe 55. We saw incredible temperatures on court in Melbourne this week. But first of all, they don't care about encore temperature. And if the humidity is not high as well, you know, the heat rule may not go into effect. So the idea that they changed the heat rule in 2015 is like impossible to be believed because they had tons of problems. They had Frank Dansevich hallucinating snoopy you remember that mm -hmm. a few years prior like the fact that they would change the heat rule to make it easier to die on court is it's just bizarre i understand like being in condition training in the heat this is another measure of athletic performance but like how much is too much well it seems that the only way we're going to find out how much is too much is if somebody drops dead on court or is able to not continue their career because mm -hmm. of some injury due to that we we've seen precedent we've seen the Dancevich thing and you want to say well he just wasn't conditioned enough he was ranked how low yeah he's just not an elite athlete but It's... as as a uh, mel athena 1949 and twitter pointed out we've seen so much of this happen in high school american athletics specifically mm -hmm. in football where kids just drop dead, literally drop dead. Yeah. And I would argue that the Australian Open has been very lucky mm -hmm. to date, that they haven't had to deal with something very tragic with all that going on. 
added to which, who, who are the people who want to be watching tennis under those conditions? Well, that's the thing. Is it safe for fans as well? Well, who are fans not, who fan, are not required to be well conditioned. No, fans who are there, fans who are on their couch like I was in the middle of the night. Like I went and watched the Fosters <laughs> instead mm. after the end of the third set of Djokovic uh, Mofis. Because what does that match tell me about the nature of their rivalry, the history of their matchups, where they are now? in their respective careers. What does it tell me about Djokovic now coming back from injury? What does it tell me about Mofis, who won to start the year, who looks like he's totally redone his outlook on his career and is far more serious mm -hmm. than he's ever been? You know, like, that that's the matchup that we wanted to see. And the weather totally scrambled that. Yes. And we... so I have no interest in watching that because the stakes and the outcome mean nothing to me personally watching it mm -hmm. because instead we got to see who suffered less mm -hmm. it's like who was able to survive and there's i understand that conditions because tennis is chiefly an outdoor sport conditions are a big factor in the outcomes of matches and it can be exciting who you know who handles the wind better who deals with the heat the humidity how it affects court speeds all these things but at what point is it unsafe at what point is it not entertaining or not very indicative of who is the better athlete or competitor? And it's really just a me, like a matter of survival. And where I am now in my life, and I said this on a previous episode, whenever issues like this come up and you're, you're fed a line by a company or a corporation, I tend to want to hold them to the fire rather than then say, well, Mofis is just not conditioned well enough. Right. Right? What interests do the Australian Open have to protect here? What's the money that they will lose? You know, it's not mm -hmm. to say that they are not in a tough position, right? Because how do you make it fair for other players who have to deal with being rescheduled, playing maybe back-to-back -back days because of this? What You can't predict what the next day is going to be necessarily, how hot it's going to get, who gets to play indoors, who gets to not play indoors. You know, you mm -hmm. want it to be an outdoor event have uniform conditions as much as possible. But, like, folks who are playing night sessions are not playing in uniform conditions as <laughs> right. the players who are playing back-to-back -back day sessions that are scorching. Yeah. You know, there, there has to be some give-or-take elasticity with the way the tournament deals with the situation. Mm -hmm. When you have temperatures on court reaching in Fahrenheit 130s, 140s, 150s even, which is for someone from northern North America like me, impossible to even understand. You can or, barely or function in 80 degree weather. <laughs> Shut <the fuck> up. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's the dead of winter here. Like we get yeah. a 40 degree day and you're telling me you had to have the doors open while you were cleaning because it was so hot. Uh, it's hot in here because the heat is on. That's not fair. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. The thing is, if I were a fan and I got to the site and it was over 40 degrees celsius to be like you know what i paid a lot for these tickets i'm gonna go back to the hotel <laughs> in air conditioning <laughs> the point is at that point it becomes it's not tennis anymore okay it's but a, what's the solution here what do you want the tournament to do well the solution is a little more human touch in the heat rule these these minor scientific distinctions are stupid 
if you can if like the newspaper is reporting how hot it is on court but what does that look like on a practical level in mm-hmm. terms of changes that can be made. well like how practically could, how could they have navigated this differently practically it's reducing the temperatures to the pre-2015 requirements that's i mean that's simple i don't know why they ever raised them because they wanted to reduce interruptions or whatever what are we off to next i guess so we're in the bad news portion of the broadcast correct so you're going to be bringing up venus now. Have, is this where this is yeah going? let's just let's just get it over and done with you and i will probably fight a little bit and then it'll be happy so Venus Williams drew Belinda Benchich or Belinda Banchich, Jesus. as our Australian commentator said. Okay, this is this is not something that I want to relive, mm-hmm. and I know you want to. You always criticize like my bona fides as a Venus fan, but I am a real Venus fan out here. But she did not put in a good performance are, against Benchich. There are degrees of fandom. Sure, she she didn't play horribly, but she didn't play a particularly um i don't know what's the word like it wasn't like she used every all 100 percent of her guts what <laughs> listen like i had to check no him last but some night people are out air. here saying that benchich was playing like steffi graf and serena williams all rolled up into one like she wasn't she doesn't have that kind of power she was hitting her serve spots extremely well how, i will say that how many times in that match were you livid because of that serve out wide and the that's, precision of it? That serve out wide. There's nothing to do about that. Exactly. But that's not every single serve in every single game. No. And Venus needs to protect her serve as well. I said this in the lead up to the match that that would have been the key. No matter how well Bench yes. is just playing, Venus has to protect her serve. Mm-hmm. And she lost serve a couple of times. It's not the end of the world. Like I expected it to be a tough match. After the first set, Venus loses the first set. Folks are out here on Twitter talking about, oh, I knew, oh, oh, I saw this one coming. This is, oh, like, calm down. Like, everybody and their dead grandmother (laughs) knew that this was going to be a tough match, right? Like, this Mm. is the one that everybody saw coming. Venus didn't play poorly. Did she play great? She did not. She had one match under her belt to start the year. She lost that one. This is her only her second match. We've seen in previous years, especially the last couple of years, that A, Venus has had the benefit, frankly, of drawing easier early round opponents, mm-hmm. where she's able to work her way into form during these big tournaments. And that helps her particularly because she's at an advanced age. At, at an advanced age, right? Right. Like, that's helpful to her. And there were also players who maybe... Uh, while not not bad players, they were styles that matched up well with her. Sure. Which is important, you know. Benchich played an amazing match. Venus didn't play that great. It was not a good combination. Benchich has quality. She has pedigree. She's a top 10 player. Everybody expects her to return to being a top 10 player. Right. Never mind her crashing out like 3-1 and one in the next mm-hmm. round. But I'm not here to be all mad about it. Yes, it sucks that Venus loses all these points. She's going to be top eight still. But it is what it is. And I don't. Th- I absolutely do not think it was as bad a performance as you are trying to make it seem here. I think you're misrepresenting what I said, though. I thought. It's I, I think. I think you chose your words very carefully, <laughs> and I think I can read between the lines. Oh, okay. I know what's in your heart. Okay. <laughs> That's so unfair. <laughs> Listen, 
it I'll concede that it looks a lot worse seeing that Benchic lost in the next round to somebody who she shouldn't have lost to. Venus, like you said, Venus didn't play a bad match, but it's also, I think that we can expect excellence from Venus. We're not expecting her to just survive out there. We're expecting her to bring her game. And that's, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. In the first I'm, round. I'm not going to condescend to Venus I'm by saying, saying it's different in the first round. We should not expect Venus Kanta, Venus Ostapenko, Venus Osaka yeah, yeah, that's, levels that's from Wimbledon in the first round in her second tournament of the year coming off the offseason at 37. Mm-hmm. It's just not it's, not, it's not practical. Like, if we get it, great. If she wins, great. But, like, she didn't embarrass herself. No. And that's, that's all I'm concerned I about. I agree. I'm not here to bash Venus about this. I think we need to move on. Okay, let's move on to some good news. That happened last night. We don't have to go in chronological order, right? No. The Sophie's Choice match. Right. Uh, Naomi Osaka versus Ash Barty. We're big fans of both. Let's start with Ash Barty because she has had... Both uh, women having appeared on the body serve. Uh, yeah, exactly. Ash started in the first round against Sabalenka at night. She's played... You know, her first two matches were under the lights in front of her Australian crowd... High pressure, she dealt with it well. She was taken to three sets by Sabalenka and had to deal with some... I mean, it was a very pro-Barty crowd, obviously, but she wasn't exactly happy with how they treated her opponent. They made fun of her grunt, you Mm -hmm. know, audibly. Sabalenka has one of those grunts, much like I came to find out Karen Hachanov, (laughs) where it starts like three, four seconds after contact is actually made Mm -hmm. and lasts through to the opponent striking the ball. Right. And, you know, we criticized Sabalenka's grunt the last episode, but what the the crowd did is just not on, in my opinion. They started mimicking and mocking her. And if you're her, how do you go out there and, and play your game and assert yourself? Like that would, if you're a sensitive person, that could really crush you. Yeah, and also, if you are there supporting Barty, that's not helping her. Mm-mm. She doesn't need to be dealing with that shit. You should also know that that's not how Ash is, and no. she's not going to be happy about that. She's a a very fair and square competitor. She's a stand-up chick, as, as she would say. <laughs> <laughs> so Ash beat Sabalenka. She beat a very informed Camila Georgie in the second round. And, I mean, I was excited about this matchup with Osaka in the third because a lot of people have said, you know, these could be future Grand Slam champs. This is this could be the next gen of the WTA. And they are in, at different places in their careers heading into this mm-hmm. match. They are. Because Ash has leapfrogged Naomi. Like, frankly, those in the know would have expected Naomi to be higher ranked, mm-hmm. having had a bigger breakthrough. At this point. Perhaps where Ash is right now. Yeah, because like in Ash, the top 20. Yeah, Ash is now provisionally ranked number 15. She mm. entered the tournament top 20, I believe. And uh, Naomi has been kind of kind of floundering a little bit. Well, she's been a little up and down. I, yeah. I mean, it's clear to anyone who sees her that she has an imposing power game, but it's just not always working, mm-hmm. right? I do remember, and I'll never forget it. I'm not going to call out the person by name because there's like a 3% chance that I get it wrong. Okay. It's kind of a bad look to be calling out somebody for something they didn't say. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I, I saw somebody on Twitter, on tennis Twitter, who is uh, fairly well known, and it, it surprised me when they said, I don't know why y'all don't get it that Osaka just isn't that good. And I was like, hold really? me back because <laughs> this shit's about to get real. <laughs> and there's no way you watched that match last night and did not see the entirety of her potential. Wow. Especially because there's still so much missing from her game. And let's, there's so much for yeah. her to work on. Her net game, her she could still move a little bit better. You know, mm-hmm. there she could have more variety in her game, surely. Right. Uh, but you saw the comparison is made so many times between her and Serena. And while you don't necessarily see it in specific technical aspects of their games, the way in which they they strike the ball so cleanly and from positions that awe you mm. <laughs> when you see it, it's a... Uh, it's on point. Like, that was an eye-opening win last night. It was. Ash did it, not play poorly, but Naomi came there from start to finish with a plan and executed really well. I Like, that's the thing that we don't always see from Naomi. That level of just fierceness, that professionalism. Like, she, like you said, she came so prepared with a game plan. She knew exactly what she wanted to do, and everything clicked. I was just so, so impressed how she handled the moment, but how she dictated like at every moment. Ash would return something deep in the court and Naomi was able to like redirect the ball, especially on her backhand. And her defense was really yeah, good. It was just night. like turning defense into offense, which is what something that Serena does you so are incredibly. Also very prone to be awed by power. Oh the yeah, power game. Yeah. Right? I I mean there's no shame in that. Like, when a power game is on for an entire match, like, I'm hooked. I'm impressed. Yeah, it's a project of mine now, though, to push you toward looking inward <laughs> at your, frankly, distaste, dislike for what you term pushing games. I don't term that. I don't I don't like to use that word too much. You said pushing early in the episode. Did I? Yeah, you definitely did. But... And you're not going to edit it out to I'm make not. me look like an idiot. No, but I think you know that I don't I don't call people pushers on this podcast because it's kind of demeaning and it takes away the the great work that's put into someone's game, like who's Wozniacki or Halep or Svitolina. Like, I'm, I'm not going to call them pushers, but it's a game that is less, I don't know, just less appealing to me. It's just a personal okay. preference. Sure, but I'm... There is like a a negative connotation toward it. I'm just saying that seeps there out. Is. Yeah, yeah. On your part, from time to time. Okay. Like I like to watch tennis players who dictate, who make things mm-hmm. happen, who are looking to move forward. And I think that's part of why you weren't as impressed with Benchich's performance in the first round. Well, the thing is, she was kind of dictating. She was, but not with like supreme power. Right. And then you get the impression that Venus should be able to just throw down hmm. and bully her off the court, right? Anyway, this is this is tangential. The point is, I felt like Naomi Osaka's performance last night was, or could be, a game changer for her. I don't know if I've ever seen her come out like that, execute so flawlessly, and especially in front of a crowd that was obviously, you know, really against her. Like, ready to root for Ash. The Vegemite army was out there mm-hmm. in MCA. And, uh, I mean, she just kind of quieted them. Let's talk about a few of the other matches from the first week 
for us up in here and up in here <laughs> for us up here in Canada <laughs> the Shapovalov Sangha match was ah uh, it was uh, nerve-wracking for you in particular I said to you the next day I said I don't think I knew the extent of which you were a Sangha fan mm-hmm. until I watched you deal with that situation. Right. I was just glued to that match. And there were so many... The thing about being a Sangha fan, or really a fan of any of the Frenchmen, is that you have to deal with a lot of pain and a lot of uncertainty. And there were there were several times in that match I was like, Ugh, you know, there's no way he's going to pull this out. Like, it's going to be another US Open... And in, even in the fifth set, he went down a break, right? And you I was like, I'm, listen, it's 1230. I have to work tomorrow. I'm just going to go to bed because clearly he's not winning this. He, but of course, I'm following the score as took, I'm trying to go to He took his sleep. ass to bed. <laughs> I can still see the light on upstairs. I said, Sangha just broke back. And like, I better come. I better get out of bed. And so he comes on the stairs. I'm like, you know, it's probably not best for Joe if you're watching because... <laughs> The history of this is that he'll probably do better if you don't watch. Mm. But he he won. Oh, it was so satisfying. It I always feel like I have like during a major in the first week you have like one or two matches that you just glued to. One of these five set thrillers. In this case, it was someone I'm a huge fan of. But sometimes it's just you know you get sucked into a match where you don't really you're not really involved in the outcome. But for this one, I was so emotionally invested. Sangha then goes on to play Nick Kyrgios mm-hmm. in another one of the marquee matches of the first week and loses in four tight sets. Three of them, I believe, being the three sets he lost being tiebreakers. Mm. Man, Sangha came so close, but in each of those tiebreaks, he just had a moment of not goodness. <laughs> <laughs> right, you know, like right. a brain fart moment that, that gifts away a point or two where had he not done so... It could have been easily Joe in four sets Mm -hmm. or even straight sets, really. But instead, we have the further maturation, as we're being told, of Nick Nick Kyrgios and him coming into himself as a world beater, which is still to be determined because there's a lot to come in his way the rest of the tournament. I don't want to talk more about that just now. Yeah, we'll leave that for later. Big on the women's side, Simona Halep and Lauren Davis. I don't know. I think I was the only one on tennis Twitter who was not into the match. In the third set, it just kept going, going, going. And I turned it off. I watched a, I watched an episode of The Amazing Race. It was very entertaining. <laughs> and I came back, and the match was still going on. I was at work, so I didn't see any of it. I got home mm-hmm. right after Simona won. And I said to you, what are you carrying on about? It seemed like it was a high-quality match. Like, what was my problem? Yeah, what, what, what is the issue? Okay, let, first let me get out of the way. Like, Lauren Davis played Lights Out, the match of her life. Apparently, somebody told me on Twitter that her backhand was clicking as fast as any man or woman in the tournament. So, good on her. You know, it's not a matter of... I, I had said, like, how is Simona getting bossed around by this tiny woman? And I still think it's a fair assessment. The size may be not the... Like, it's not the biggest issue. Because Simona's not big either. But how is a two-time runner-up being absolutely bossed by this little girl? <laughs> uh, Listen. It's just... No. No, I said to you as well that Williams fans, we've said it on the podcast before, we always say, 
oh, look at all these women coming out here playing the match of their life when it's Venus <laughs> or Serena across the net. Yeah, yeah. And here is the world number one. Simona has earned this, and so she's earned the right to have somebody play out of their mind against yes. her. But, okay, it's hard for me to put this into words. And people were saying, you know, she's suffering this ankle injury, which is definitely a legitimate issue. She didn't really seem to be suffering uh, in her movement. Like, she's still very quick. Like, Simona Halep is only five foot six, but she can generate a lot of torque and a lot of power from her frame. The thing is, <laughs> Martina Navratilova was savaging Simona really bad early in the third set, especially when it was getting to like six all when somebody could win. And she was saying, oh, again, Simona is playing not to lose rather than playing to win. And something that we saw in the French Open final, I think that's Against fair. Ostapenko. Yes. I mean, Martina was being probably unnecessarily harsh and underestimating how well Davis was playing. But if you are injured, if you have a player who's zoning and getting everything back, you have to try something different. Like you have to, Simona has a lot of variety. She can play at the net. She has drop shots. She has lobs. Like just try something. That was my problem. It's like, if you are hindered in your movement, why are you, why do you want to grind like 25 shot points? It's just, I don't get it. And that's what was annoying me. And that's why I turned it off. The bottom line is Simona has caught a lot of flack for not winning matches like that in the past. And she showed a lot of the fight in winning that match that people claim she hasn't. She did. She did. I'll give and I'll so definitely kudos give that. to her because the the headlines and the narratives that would be continued following a loss to Lauren Davis, right? Whoa. As at her first major as number as one. As number one, yes. Mm-hmm. So she gets Naomi Osaka next. Look out for that. There was a lot of speculation as to whether Stan Wawrinka would play at this mm. tournament. He did. He won his first match against Barangas in four sets. Didn't look particularly great, but hey, he was there. Maybe he could got, mm. get better from round to round. You saw that huge scar on his knee? Yeah. Whoa. And so he played Tennis Sangren in the second round and lost in straight sets. We'll get to him later on. <laughs> that was a notable match. Goffa, one of the favorites. I think you even pegged him or was talking in those terms mm. along with other people uh, saying a that. A lot of people did. Yeah, well, I was pushing back against that. I just want to put that out there. He loses to Benito, which is a fabulous result for Benito, mm. who then goes on to lose to Fonini in the third round. Berdick and Del Potro played last night, and I thought that at best Del Potro would win in straight sets, at worst he'd win in maybe five. Like, I did not see this result coming. Berdick blew him off the court. It was not even close. 6-3, I tweeted last night that I am me supporting Berdick right now. I'm so past that point in my life. <laughs> where, where, where when, that's were you, a, when were you not past that? You never liked him. It's not about... Oh, like, I was mostly indifferent but willing to root for him to win mm. like i would have had no problem with berdick winning a slam you know but like yeah. at this point i'm just i'm just so over it like i know what's coming shortly like some flame out well you could just never trust him to beat the top guys so that's why i'd never stand mm. are you ready for this juicy result what 
Hyun Chung beats Sasha Zverev, running away six love in the final set, in the fifth set, with Zverev only winning five points. Uh That was uh, an embarrassing performance. Not to say that Chung didn't play really, really well, but man, Sasha has got to do better than that. I felt like he wasn't even trying in the fifth set. I find it hard to watch Zverev at this point. Like, there's nothing Mm. about his game that interests me. Nothing about him that interests me either. And the standing that he has as the next gen king, Uh you know, I I, I I found such great irony in that he withdrew from the next gen finals because, okay, fine, you qualified for London, right? You're not going to play both. Yeah. Chung goes and wins the next gen finals. And now here he is across that net (laughs) sending you packing. Uh, Yeah. I mean, to be fair, like, Zverev's standing is in many ways earned. He won Montreal, he won Rome, two Masters titles, he won, uh, what was it, Washington or something, this summer. Like, he's beaten the top guys at non-major events. Mm-hmm. Like, he's earned the points. But these are kind of the, the victories that people are going to remember. Man, Caroline Wozniacki barely escaped losing against Fett in the second round. I believe Fett was up 5-1 and 40-15. She, was, she had double match point. Mm-hmm. And Caroline comes all the way back to win 7-5 in the third set. In the annals of comebacks from match points and 5-1, it's not the most impressive one I've seen, to be honest. I thought she got very lucky. Meaning? Meaning Fett was playing very well and basically stopped playing well. And Caroline remembered that she was the top player. I mean, she played horribly for most of the match, and then she did exactly what she was supposed to do as a professional in the third set. So Wozniacki fans will probably hate me for that, but that was not super impressive for me. Does it need to be impressive? No. No, I mean, she won. She hasn't looked particularly great. Yeah, which is annoying to me because I marked her as a possible winner of the whole tournament. So I'm taking it personally. She did then go on to beat Kiki Burton's 6-4, 6-3. She had already beaten Buzernescu in the first round. Who was a finalist in Hobart. Mm-hmm. So it's not like she's had... Hor- she had a hiccup, a very big one that could have yeah. been fatal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's but she's uh, still around. <laughs> There's really only one more match that we want to talk about, and I know you've just been kind of sitting there looking at me, waiting for me to shut up so you can talk about it. So I'm going <laughs> to let you have the mic. It's the one people want to hear about. Kerber Sharapova. It was really like the match of the first week, or it should have been. What did you think going into it? Like, what was your feeling? I thought Kerber was going to win. How? Like, in what way? Fairly routinely. Hmm. That's, like, that's interesting. Like, maybe two close uh-huh. sets, but I felt that she would... The thing is, what Maria does, I don't think should trouble Kerber playing near her best. Right. I think I... I I underestimated how how back Kerber was, like in in what good form that she had conquered kind of the demons of 2017. I just wasn't totally sure yet. Well, you'd seen the results, but you hadn't watched her play. Yeah, but I think this was the match that that had to convince me. I th- I had a feeling that Kerber would win, but not like that. I think that had to surprise a lot of people, right? She came out firing, hugging the baseline. Bending those knees, redirecting the ball. (laughs) And what Maria really struggles with against Kerber in that kind of form is Kerber is able to stretch her so easily and at will. And Maria, we've seen, doesn't do well on the run. Mm -hmm. 
If she's able to set up for her shots, she can place it wherever she wants. But if she's moving out wide on the forehand, on the backhand, it's a totally different proposition. And Kerber is able to open up the court so much with those short angles. I mean, she can hit a, a running stretch forehand like like the best of them, Sharapova. She can. Not always. She can, but if that's becoming the play that you have to rely on to mm-hmm. make against somebody like well, Kerber, it becomes a losing proposition. Because it's a very low percentage shot for mm-hmm. most. And especially for her, is my point. Okay. You know, you hear a lot about Sharapova being a great one of the greatest competitors. I I just thought that she would stretch Kerber a little bit more. Because Kerber came out with a very clear game plan, and and it worked, and she executed it near flawlessly. I but, think, but for like a three-game stretch in the second set, yeah, yeah, in the beginning of the second set, at three all, it was like, well, this is this is touch and go. We'll see mm-hmm. the nature of this match now. What's going to happen based on these next couple games? And you literally blinked, and it was over. Yeah, see, that was the surprising thing for me at three all. Sharapova had break points. There was a clear opening to to change the tenor of this match. And when she lost and Kerber held 4-3, that was it. Like, there was no more resistance to be had after that. That's what really surprised me about it. Uh, and that's also what convinced me that Angie is kind of... She's conquered that 2017 thing. No, she absolutely has. Yeah. I guess no made it seem like I was oh, going to disagree with like... you, but yeah, she absolutely has. Yeah. And it's so great to see her and hear her talk about it because she's so frank about it. She's like, mm. man, 2017 sucked. Like, I am like, I'm... so glad it's over. <laughs> but what I also enjoy is that she, when she's asked, like, what's different this year from last year? She always pivots to saying, well, well, 2016, I won a lot. Mm-hmm. And that the last 24 months has been a learning experience. <laughs> Not just right, losing last year. Like it's, it's been the, the entire spectrum from pole to pole right. that she's experienced. And now she's back and she's, she's brimming with confidence mm-hmm. again. And the thing that I enjoyed most about that match is it was a timely reminder that the level that Kerber showed last night and the level that she showed... In 2016, especially against Serena in those matches, was no fluke. And that she has that level. Well, the frustrating thing about last year was that her athleticism didn't go anywhere. Like, she she is a superior athlete. One of the best on the women's tour. And that didn't disappear. Like, it wasn't... There weren't a lot of physical troubles for her last year. It was It was all in the head. Which is why it was so frustrating to watch her. A note on the American men. I learned about the lamp. I did not know that that was a thing. Yeah, apparently that's an acronym that we're supposed to know. The last American male player. Standing, lamps, they're lamps. Oh. I guess, yeah. Okay. (laughs) And so the lamps at this tournament were Tennis Sandgren and Ryan Harrison. And Marin Cilic did God's work. (laughs) But Sandgren is still alive. in the second week of a slam, improbably. And he's getting the media treatment of wonderment mm-hmm. and the profiles of humility and all that stuff. Right? The journeyman. He's charming. He's the, nice. We've talked about the, the alt men on the show before. And, you know, wonderful for you, I guess, if 
these two American men is doing it for you. But kudos to Bad Toss on Twitter. She's been covering the Challenger circuit in her hometown of, what is it? Champaign-Urbana. Uh-huh. And Tennis Sangren won there in 2013. She's written a piece that circulated on Twitter before on her own blog about tennis and her personal experiences with him, having interviewed him and uh, running into him in subsequent years. And she's written a follow-up piece again today. If you are relying on these fluff pieces about Sangren to get to know him, familiarize yourself with him through that means as well. So we'll let her work speak for itself. This is one of the more disappointing aspects about tennis journalism for me is that is how little reporting actually goes into it, how small the world, how how tenuous the grasp on access a lot of tennis journalists have, which handcuffs them in what they can or will say. Mm-hmm. Suffice it to say that tennis is your friendly, genial Nazi next door. I mean... Tennis he, the person. Yes. Ten- <laughs> tennis. Okay. He has views that are extremely alarming. In the Trump era, they're a little more uh, visible. But I would say before 2016, you would be truly, truly shocked to see these things in writing. To see someone own up to them openly. That's, that's all I'm going to say. A lot of folks in tennis media will say, well, it's not relevant. Like, if you ask them, like, why isn't that being reported on, they might say, well, it's about his tennis, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But we also get so much useless, trivial, irrelevant Mm -hmm. stuff as well. We know it's not about their tennis. So treat, if you think all those things are irrelevant, treat the irrelevant things equally. (laughs) Sure. The other thing, we mentioned Coco. She went out to Tamea Babos in the first round. She got into it with the umpire about a banana. It wasn't exactly about the banana. It was about being late after the changeover, right? Then, in the final game, she got a code for unsportsmanlike conduct and a point penalty. This is after, well, she smashed her racket, but she also said, fuck off, you fucking bitch, to Tamea. Oh. Again, like, this is something that Coco does. She screams obscenities directed at her opponent and then demurs and says what she like when she was talking to the umpire i almost felt bad for her because she put on the most gentle pleading voice like she's like i understand but is why is it a point penalty and the umpire was like yo do you recall our conversation about the banana (laughs) and she's like oh okay hashtag humble queen (laughs) the umpires have just been emboldened at this Australian Open. They're enforcing the rules. They're ready for everything. I mean, poor Dominic Team. He got detention. Uh, before the match even started, the umpire said, Dominic, you were over a minute late coming to the court after the warm-up. You need to report to the referee's office after the match. <laughs> and if you know Dominic, that probably weighed on him for the entire match. Like, he's not used to being in trouble. And he was like, what? What? And she was like, you know, you're not in trouble, but you do need to go to the referee's office. This is a serious offense. He's like, oh, my God, when Kiki finds out. (laughs) (laughs) So between the banana fight, the time violations, Rafa also got a time violation by his number one nemesis, Carlos Bernardes, before the match started. Like, just as he was going to serve to open the match. 
um, which I don't even think he registered. I don't. I don't think he actually heard it. No, but... Rafa is just ready for it at this point. <laughs> it's it's not going to bother him. Yeah, but, but uh, I kind of I I kind of like it. That seems to be the general uh, reception to it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, there's no yeah. need for us to be waiting through these endless warm-ups. I, I was never bothered by the time thing as far as, you know, Djokovic bouncing the balls and Rafa taking too long between points. Like, that doesn't bother me as a fan. But I do not tolerate disrespect to ball kids, umpires, and your opponent. So I'm all about enforcing that kind of sure. shit. Sure, but like yeah. the starting the match and being over a minute late with team, like, get it together. Mm-hmm. Like, you're warming up in the in the tunnel you just need to get like a few reps in and then start the match. Right. It's not that big. Yeah, idea. yeah. Okay, I agree. Let's talk about Health IQ, our sponsor. They're a life insurance agency who works with only the top, you know, A or A plus rated insurers to get you the best rates possible on life insurance. Are you a health conscious person? Are you a tennis player? The reason why they're sponsoring us is because we imagine there are a lot of you out there who are health conscious. And because you play tennis, would be a good candidate mm-hmm. to unlock some of these special rates. I mean, we're we're trying. If you are doing the work, you should reap some benefits for it. You really should. This is not an experience where you just go online and you fill out something and then you don't deal with anybody, right? There's mm-hmm. a health IQ agent who takes you through the process the entire way. It's very hands-on, and you can save up to 33% on your life insurance premium. What I really like is they have this, you can either take a quiz to kind of show that you're health conscious, or you can actually log workouts on an app. Or, you know, if you've run races or whatever, you just provide evidence that you've completed the races and you can qualify, you know, for the the lower rates. And so to see if you qualify, get your free quote at healthiq.com slash bodysurf, or... Mention the promo code BODYSURF when you talk to an agent. Let's talk about our favorite kits. Favorite, Dominic Team, Joe Songa. Joe Songa. Same kit. Like Hall of Fame shorts yes. that Joe Songa had on. He, the same shorts that Team had on. Well, no, no. Songas were more of like a sweatpants fabric, and they had a rolled up cuff. Oh, and, I mean, from the same family. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, he he's put on a little weight in like the the places that you want it that's <laughs> that's all you're gonna say yep. about that i enjoyed djokovic's night nightgown i loved loved that black and blue night kit that novak had on it was maybe a little too tight in the shirt it ex- accentuates how mm, maga he is oh my God. how incredibly thin he is people may think that as maga M- oh <laughs> No, that's MAGA. Yeah, skinny no. is what you want to say. How skinny he is. Gaunt. Yes. Naomi's, uh, that was Adidas, right? Yes. With the boning, that kind of boning in yeah. the top. Um, Playful, colorful. Mm-hmm. It played so well with the, the power. You know, the, yeah. the, the whimsy of the outfit with the power <laughs> of her game. A brilliant combination. And I think in a controversial pick, I love Ash Barty's Fila look. I First of all, I love the throwback quality of Fila tennis mm-hmm. outfits. Yes. I like the just the plain red, white, and blue Fila stuff. 
and her little, I call it a cupcake wrapper skirt. I call it a shuttlecock skirt. (laughs) (laughs) It was was just cute. It was playful and cute. I loved it. I love the feel of colors. I often love what they do with them. I did Mm. not like Ash's outfit. Okay, fair enough. Worst, we only have one listed and we can agree on it. This is to say that the majority of them were bad, right? Right. But right. the worst for us was Rafa. Was Rafa's, and it's because of the missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. That's why it's not really the worst kid out there, but it's just like you finally got this guy in sleeveless again. His like sleeveless kit in practice is really cute. Makes him look really good, and like the Nike logo is probably way too big for like a real like a playing kit. But I don't like it was just a missed opportunity. The colors are drab. It's like ugh. the armholes are too big. <laughs> he looks like he's swimming. It's like a night mm. shirt. Yeah. Worse yet, one that looks like it's dirty. Right. The color, it doesn't look gray. It looks dirty. Mm-hmm. And then it's just all that pink with all that drab. It mm-hmm. just, it's not a good yeah. combination. One that I think. It's kind of in the middle is Nike's uh, pink lingerie sateen pajama look that a lot of the women have on. Carolyn Garcia had it. Um, Lucy Savajava was it's wearing peach. it. It's not pink. It's peach. Pinkish. I mean, you know, I'm not good at these like, <laughs> you know, very subtle d- degrees of oh color. My God. Okay. It's, it's so peach. What, isn't peach like kind of pink? Okay. 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 Oh. Uh, I'm looking at it. Right. I'm saying I'm going to give that. To it's you. kind of a light pink. Whatever. Right. I like the high neck. But uh, the shirt is a little bit short, and uh, I don't mind. I, I like the shorts look. Somebody's got the got to rep the shorts look because Vika's not here to do it. Mm. I'm telling you, I think Ash would rock the shorts really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the the Nike look, the shirt is a little too short during play. But the dress version of that is very cute. Actually, mm. it looks really nice. I'm trying to think what Sloan wore. I felt bad for Sloane because, like, she's finally signed with Nike and they really did her like that. It was horrible. You know, strike that. Sharapova's dress is the worst. Somebody compared on Twitter Simona Halep's no-name made-in-China, like, kit that made it four hours with no sweat stains Mm -hmm. versus Sharapova's Nike kit that she's getting many millions to wear. It looked horrible. It looked cheap. You could see her black undergarments under it. It was just, it looked terrible. Like she should sue them. They should pay her more to wear that. <laughs> now to close the show, we got lots of talk about a topic that we've talked about extensively on the show over the three plus years. Unions in professional tennis. Mm-hmm. Novak Djokovic is the current president of the ATP Players Council. Uh, before the Australian Open this year, there was an all-players meeting. It came out, like, in the first few days of the tournament that there was, uh, like, something huge happened at the meeting. Supposedly, Novak Djokovic ushered an Australian labor relations lawyer onto the stage, which he denies ever happened. We don't really know if it did or not. But that he called for a players' association or union Uh, to look into the issues about the distribution of prize money. That Grand Slams give a very small percentage of their profits away in prize money, and that it needs to be distributed more equitably. 
so much information about this story was either refuted or called out to be like mm -hmm. untrue that we don't know what exactly yeah. happened. So Mike Dixon at the Daily Mail reported in a very snarky and smug story that Novak asked all of the non-players in the meeting to leave the room. And then he invited a lawyer to come on stage and, and basically speak about what is a union and what are your rights and privileges and obligations when you join one. So Novak has been asked point blank, did that happen? He said, no. There was no lawyer present, and no, we didn't ask everyone to leave. So if you've listened to this podcast over the past three years, like you said, I especially have been harping on about the need for a player's union because it's impossible for an organization that represents the tournaments and the players to negotiate properly. That's not good faith bargaining. There is an inherent conflict of interest in the ATP. Now, the, it's called the Association of Tennis Professionals. It was founded in the 70s as a player's association, as their voice. But where we are now, I mean, there's no way that players have an adequate voice, a, a unified voice in this organization. They try and get representation for players all throughout the rankings by having, you know, representative from the, the top level of the rankings to like the 50s level, mm. to like somebody outside the top 100 kind of thing, so that people are represented more along the spectrum, right? And it seems, if we're to believe Novak, that the main issue here is distribution of money to be able to make the careers of the players who are struggling on the outskirts, outskirts of the rankings more comfortable. Or or more possible. Yeah. You know, he's saying a lot of, a lot of good players are just quitting tennis altogether because it's impossible to afford mm -hmm. and we're talking we're not talking about the 500th ranked player i mean we are but we're also talking about the number 51 ranked player for example yeah that, that person may not be making a reasonable wage after all their their expenses are paid that somebody ranked 100 in the world could be struggling to not be able to hire a full-time coach is galling with all the money it that is. there is in tennis. And so the comparison is frequently to golf, where the 200th ranked player in golf is making a very comfortable, very wealthy living. And in tennis, you are not breaking even if you're ranked 200. You are probably incurring debt to play the sport that you love. And, and the sport that you're better than almost everyone in the entire world at uh -huh. right and the the travel costs involved in tennis are so much more than golf yes which makes it doubly worse for them right like you can play the u.s tour and you can play the u.s tour in a bus if you want mm, it right you can fire up the old station wagon and golf and golf yeah but you're traveling from continent to continent week to week in a lot of cases so my initial reaction, hearing Novak talk about unionization is very exciting for me because it's something I believe in. And I think that in order for the players to have any sort of power in negotiation, there has to be an independent body. There's no way that basically the employer is going to grant you the things that you want because they are benevolent. That's not how this works. It's not how capitalism works. This is like the new tech companies in Silicon Valley saying, we don't need unions because we are looking out for you. We know that is false throughout 
throughout history. It's it's not in their best interest. And these companies, it's in their best interest not to have a union to deal with because it costs them a lot more money to have to go through those channels. Oh, of like course. When they say if you have a union, it necessarily changes the relationship between employer and employee. It certainly does. To the yes. employee's detriment. And they use that as a means of discouraging you from joining a, new un- a union. That's because they then have to go and hire all these people and these lawyers to then navigate the process on their end. It does. <laughs> you know? Yes. And uh, well, having worked in uh, in companies that are unionized in human resources, it does make relations between employer and employee much more complicated. It it just does. Like that, that's a fact of life. But it uh, in this case, the other major sports organizations have a players association or players union. The NHL, NBA, NBA MLB, all of the major, like the big four sports organizations do. Now, it's particularly difficult in tennis because it's international. You have a huge range of, of sort of cultural approaches people coming from all different countries linguistic backgrounds you also have Um, multiple bosses it's not mm -hmm. just the atp it's the itf it's the tournament directors who all exist hovering above the players Mm -hmm. and they're multiple mouths to feed and so who are you dealing with and it's also tv and Uh clothing sponsors i mean the grand slams have an interest in making tv happy they in many ways pay the bills the sponsors play, pay the bills and so what i'm really annoyed about is the tenor of the coverage the quality of the coverage of this issue because this is where reporting and journalism really needs to step up i understand the conflicts and the tensions involved in such a small sport vis-a-vis journalism you have to preserve access It's difficult to get straight answers out of players and out of officials. And a lot of times you're basically part of the press corps at their goodwill. You know, you're invited into the the inner sanctum of the tournament itself. And that's the only way you get real access. So I get all that, but the lack of quality and the lack of integrity in the reporting of this issue is, is galling. I mean, it's mainly the British press that has been reporting it. So we have the Daily Mail, which you expect the Independent, the Telegraph, have written very condescending, very glib and smug, supposed news articles about this labor action, if it is indeed a labor action. Mm -hmm. But first of all, the first one I saw was the Daily Mail. The headline was mocking a wealthy, well-paid athlete like Djokovic for asking for equal or for more prize money which is entirely besides the point right because there are a million things that a union could do in tennis it could address the heat rule at the australian open for example it could address something as banal as the balls used at different tournaments that they be uniform it's about looking at player safety it's basically a way to organize players to advocate for themselves as, well, not a simple thing, but something that I've always thought about. If a player comes out, what are the protections in place right. to create a safe working environment for them? Right? I mean, that has mm-hmm. to be a priority of the people involved to begin with. But that's something that a union could do to make that type of experience possible. Right. 
and safe for a player. Mm-hmm. And so, like you mentioned, in a sport that's so decentralized and the locus of power is in a lot of different places, and the players are kind of independent contractors, these are all things that contribute to employees having less power, having less voice, taking more risk if they speak out. And so, in my opinion, a player's union could have such an incredibly powerful effect. It could open up the sport. It could. Now, I'm not saying that unions are perfect and that they're kind of the utopian ideal, but the fact that Novak Djokovic is bringing it up exhilarated me. Or that it was reported that he was, because you were really excited about this. I was. Now, at the same time, you have reports and insinuations that this could imperil equal prize money. Now, unfortunately, because the articles that I've read are so incredibly biased against unionization and so condescending, it's it's impossible to get at the truth. Now, if we are to believe that people like Gilles Simon and Viktor Troitsky are indeed part of this push from Novak, that is very disheartening because those are players who have taken time out of their schedule to speak out about how inferior women's tennis is and how they don't deserve equal prize money. There's this uh, fallacy, I believe, that it's impossible to bring women along in this kind of action, right? That it's Mm -hmm. impossible to have a joint union that benefits both tours. If this is a road that Novak is going down, if this is a road that somebody in the future is going down, I hope that they have the foresight to include women as well. Right. Like I said, it's so hard to get at the facts of the matter at this point. I want to believe that equal prize money is not at stake here. And Carol Bouchard helpfully pointed out on Twitter that the ITF has an equal prize money rule already enshrined at the Grand Slams and some of the mixed gender events. So that's not going anywhere. What troubles me is the people involved, if if we are to believe those people are involved. Mm-hmm. And curiously, we saw Djokovic in one of his press conferences afterward uh, making the most of women's tennis. Yes, like going out of his way to big up women's tennis, saying they deserve to be out here and to be getting paid what they're worth. With respect to the news that the WTA had signed a new deal to have the year-end championships in Shenzhen. Uh-huh. Ten years and a whole bag of money. And the purse is huge. Enormous. It's like increased. doubled. Yeah. Right? And the tenor of that, though, was like, oh, you know, more power to them. I'm so happy for them that they were able to do this for themselves, blah, blah, blah. But it, it takes me back to his Indian Wells comments mm-hmm. yeah. where it was like separate but equal in a kind, right. in a kind of way. Like, you, we should both fight for what we deserve. But, right? But independent of each other. Yeah. You know, he was trying to support women's tennis in his way, but also making very clear that they should fight separately for what they deserve. And my fear is now with this news of Shenzhen and that big deal that the WTA scored, it can be pointed to as like, well, look, they've, they've got themselves doing okay. Right. You know, like they don't need us. And so the thing is, first of all, this Australian Open has got me so fucked up because it has got me defending Novak Djokovic all over the place. <laughs> That's rude. <laughs> I don't know what Novak's personal politics are, and I 
suspect we disagree on quite a lot. He really stepped in it at Indian Wells, like you mentioned, with the, you know, the entertainment value thing. And that was also after Raymond Moore had already said that horrible stuff. And it mm-hmm. would have been so easy to to refute it, right? I think that Novak is uh, an incredibly smart guy. He's a really intelligent man and knows that he made a lot of people mad about what he said in Dean Wells. He knows also that the rumors are swirling about this unionization thing that they're trying to basically reverse the clock on, on pay equity. He knows that. I kind of see Novak as the intellect of the big four. You yeah. know, whereas, like, if you want to look at it in a really kind of binary yeah. way, like, Andy Murray is the conscience of the big four. He's, like, the moral guide. He's not here. So his mom is here. Right? And Andy's <laughs> here on Twitter doing a Q&A where he's bigging up women's tennis. Yeah. Like, he is the one who at every turn will check a bitch without prompting. <laughs> you know, like, right, right. if you step out of the line and, and, and move away from equality... He's there to bring it back. And you can tell that it's automatic for him. It's like it's natural. Mm -hmm. So you have Judy Murray out here, you know, engaging with Andy Roddick on Twitter and saying, I think this is a great idea. And I think that men and women should work together and form a singular union to represent both. And she has a point there. Of course, the interests of both are very different and and sort of the, the powers that be are really different that they're up against, but they are stronger together. They can advocate better. I think that, I don't know, I just think that the results and the outcomes would be better if they were in the same bargaining unit. I really do. So every time you read a story about this unionization thing, I, you don't need to be told. Obviously, you are all intelligent people, but be, <laughs> be cognizant of how biased in tone all of these are. I'm reading these things from supposedly reliable sources, and all I see is smugness and mocking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the association of Novak Djokovic with communism, uh, you, throwing around the word comrade as a joke, it's just, we are not children. We are smart enough and old enough to expect that you tell the truth and you ask the right questions. Well, consider, too, that a lot of these stories are being written for publications that have political leanings yes. that could be anti-union. And that's a yes. very strong political angle mm. that these papers might want to push one way or the other. But why did these reporters, why are they so invested in the way that things are? Uh, is change just scary and difficult? or The reporting itself is one part of the cog. It you is. have the editors, mm. you have... We've we've seen it over the years about how news is decided top down. Right. Like the the reporter right. himself or herself, in a lot of ways, shy of saying, "Well, I'm morally objected. I'm morally opposed to the the direction that you're taking this story. I'm out." Mm-hmm. You know, like you have to feed yourself. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, so like it's yeah. it's complex. I I get that, but listen, like, what is journalism for if it's not for? Asking the questions, because certainly, as we pointed out, there are a lot of questions about this. And and I think Djokovic, in a position of power and in a position where he has made himself political, and he, he's beginning to be more comfortable with that, you need to ask these questions, report them honestly, and tell us what you found out. That's, that's 
all I want. Yeah, but if you ask, was there a lawyer present? And if there was one, and mm -hmm. then he then says no, then what do you do? Right. Well, you don't call him Red Nove. That's mm. the first thing. You don't call him Comrade. You don't make jokes about communism. Because th do you think that the NHL is like a safe haven for the Bolsheviks? No. Like the NBA? Is that like a Soviet haven? No, they all have player unions and things are not exactly like socialist in those realms, right? It's ridiculous and it's silly. And let's not even get into the xenophobia embedded in some calling someone red, especially yeah. someone from Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. It's offensive. It's something we're going to have to pay attention to closely and just see how it plays out and acknowledge that Novak is in a position of tremendous power to maybe do a whole mm -hmm. lot of good here. And we'll just have to trust that he puts his hand up. <laughs> you know, we'll see. There's, It's a lot of speculation at this mm. point. That takes us to the end of the episode. I know we joked that we would like to see uh, Carla in the final on the woman's side. And checking the score in the middle of recording, it looked very impossible when she was down 6-4, <laughs> a double break in the second set. But it is now one all in the third set. Carla won five straight games to close out the second set and just had break points against Konzevite mm. to start the third. So This is how hard it is to cover a major. It just never stops. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. I'm Comrade James. You can find me <laughs> at Elliot JMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. The Body Serve, as always, on Twitter at The Body Serve. And... We'll be coming back to you in about a week with a wrap of the Australian Open. Till next time.